The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. While the planet grappled with COVID-19 last year, Wall Street banks were making, in some cases, record revenue. One of those was Morgan Stanley. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange group business. I'm John Foley, the US editor of Reuters Breaking Views, bringing you a special episode of the Exchange podcast as part of our series of 2022 predictions-themed fireside chats. For this one, Gina Chon and I chatted with James Gorman, chief executive of Morgan Stanley. James was in New York, Gina's in Washington, DC, and I'm down here in New Orleans. We talked about why James thinks Morgan Stanley is increasingly different from the Wall Street pack, about the pitfalls of an overvalued market, and we also got into some stuff on income inequality, Bitcoin, and why the market's going to have to get used to the end of free money, like it or not. Give it a listen. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today for our Breaking Views prediction session. Thank you very much to you, James Gorman, CEO of Morgan Stanley, for being here with us today. Um, I'm John Foley. I'm the US editor of Reuters Breaking Views, coming to you from New Orleans today. I'm here with my colleague, fellow columnist Gina Chong, who's over in Washington. James, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're a week away from, you just reported your fourth quarter results, you had record revenue for 2021. I mean, the last two years of COVID have been basically unremittingly bad for human beings, but but great for the markets, good for Wall Street, and therefore pretty good for Morgan Stanley. Uh, I'd love to know, a month into 2022, how are you, what's the mood over there? How are you synthesizing these very different uh, trajectories? Well, I think the markets are maybe coming more in line with uh, uh, some of the broader misery that we've all suffered through. I mean, clearly you're gonna see much more volatility this year. Uh, You're gonna have an increase in interest rates. We have more inflation and it's not just the disruption of the supply chain. And uh, there are companies that are trading at, you know, 30, 40, 50 times revenues. And that's great if you're, you know, growing exponentially, but the minute you're not, that starts looking very pricey. So I think what we're seeing, John, is you know markets that are going to have a lot of volatility. This is a year I think stock pickers will do well, indices less well. There's a lot of worry at the moment about normalisation, isn't there, and what that looks like. And that was definitely reflected in the way people were asking questions of you and your peers about the fourth quarter. Today, you know, today Credit Suisse has come up with what's effectively a profit warning, saying things have slowed faster than they expected. Where, like, how far are we from normal? So, for example, like you, you know, Morgan Stanley, you, you, your fixed income revenue, you know, trading bonds and fixing securities down about 30% in the fourth quarter. Um, I think the big five banks overall had about $10 billion of, of revenue. Is that the new normal, do you think? Or are we still drifting downwards to something, some kind of new level? No, it was just one quarter. I mean, uh, you know, as I've said before, quarters come around with alarming frequency every 13 weeks. I don't get too tied up in one quarter's earnings and fixed income by definition is very volatile. You have the credit side, but you also have the macro side. So depending what rates and FX are doing, uh, it can either be strong or, you know, in this quarter is pretty subdued. So I don't take much, much uh, away from that. You're going to have more activity in the macro space this year is my guess. I bet they're up and we'll see how credit performs, but, you know, overall normalization, I mean, the, the, the froth, has been in the valuations on some of the assets that are traded in the markets. 
the fact that some of the big banks have done very well in this environment is both a function of the environment, but also their business models. So speaking for us, you know, we're now generating over 30 billion in revenue in wealth and asset management. When I started this journey over a decade ago, you know, that number was probably closer to five or six billion. So it's, it's, it's a business model shift much more than it is a market shift in terms of Morgan Stanley. So I want to, yeah, that's, I want to ask you about that business model shift because wealth and asset management, as you said, is about 30 billion. So that's about half your revenue now. And, and when fourth quarter earnings came out, you know, investors, at some of your peers were, were quite freaked out about rising costs at the big banks in particular. So JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, their shares all fell as they came out with earnings. You got asked about this and, and you said that, that Morgan Stanley has a different business model. And, and I'd just love to explore a bit more how it's different. You obviously transformed Morgan Stanley over the last decade or so, going deeper into wealth management, but where do you see the big similarities and differences being in the future compared with the pack, if you like, those that kind of classic peer group that you're often lumped with? Well, you know, every company is different. I'm not going to compare to specific institutions, so it's not fair to them. But our business model, take, take our financial advisors, which accounted last year for about 24, 25 billion in revenue. They're paid on a grid. So they're paid based upon revenue. So there is no inflation. The, the, it's, it's based upon whatever revenue is produced, they're paid a certain payout by product, et cetera. Take our investment bankers. We don't, you know, the salary increases to entry-level people don't affect somebody who's a managing director in investment banking. They're paid on what we call total reward, their bonuses. So, you know, the question is, where else are you spending money? Maybe you're spending it at a faster rate in technology. We are, but mm -hmm. we also bought a lot of technology when we bought E-Trade and Eaton Vance. So where others maybe are building digital platforms, we bought a digital platform. So I think every company has to look at its cost structure based upon what their business is. There's no absolutes that our expenses are going to go up. It's driven by which parts of the business perform, where we need to make investments and so on. And I think it's not totally surprising to me that maybe our projections of expense growth are lower than maybe some of the other uh, banks in the universe because we have a different business model. That's all. And is, it, is that, are you consciously setting out to keep that variability in your expenses because you say that you've got a grid you've got people that pay based on what they what they bring in um and so that pay flexes with the with activity right and whereas your client your, your rivals who are opening bank branches or as you say building big new technical infrastructures are going to have a lot more fixed costs do you is that a preference on your part for more variability in that cost base less operational leverage i guess not so much a preference for more variability so much as a preference for more scale if you have more scale, you have basically the same fixed costs generating more dollars of revenue against it. So the incremental dollar revenue, John, mm -hmm. um, our total expense ratio was efficiency ratio, I think for the year was 66%, which means we're operating, the inverse is a margin of 34%. Every dollar revenue that comes into the firm, we're paying out somewhere between you know, 40, 45% of compensation on in total. That means you've got 55% of incremental margin. So if you bring in extra revenues, unless you're ramping up your fixed cost dramatically, by definition, your margin is expanding. So it's about scale. What, what we've tried to do here is create three businesses, our 
trading banking business, our wealth management business, our asset management business that are at scale so that they get that margin expansion when revenues go up. We're not increasing costs dollar for dollar, dollar for dollar. Only in the comp side with the financial advisor is the variable cost tied to revenues, but with our fixed costs, it's scale driven, which is what's driving our expense ratios. Got it. And I, I don't, I don't want to ask you more about the wealth management business, obviously, which is kind of key to the Morgan Stanley transition. But just while we're on, on that question of, um, of, of comp, so, so comp has obviously flexed upwards with the market with activity with scale, not just at Morgan Stanley, but everywhere, you know, naturally in the investment banking divisions, trading desks. Everywhere, on the, everywhere on the planet, I think comp is up. It should, well, yeah, it, it does seem to be. Does it, does, does, it the reality. Go, does it go down as easily as it goes up? <clears throat> Again, for those in fixed salary positions, no. The way that goes down is you have fewer people. Mm. Um, you know, restructurings, rifts or whatever, which, which we're not planning, thank goodness. But for those with variable comp, again, if it's tied to revenues, goes down or up with revenues. For those on a bonus, if the business is not performing as well, the bonuses are lower. So yeah, it's, it's largely tied. But again, it depends on your mix of where you generate your revenues, what kind of company you are. So we, we're a different kind of company from a lot of the other large banks, obviously. So we have a different cost structure, which will behave differently in these kinds of markets. Got it. Because I mean, at the moment, lots of banks are talking about this concept of deposit beta. So how, you know, well, certainly analysts and investors talk about deposit beta, how much of the rate hikes that we might see go through to deposit rates. I'm kind of interested in the pay beta, I guess, is what I'm getting at. So, the, so is the pay beta on the way down the same as the pay beta on the way up? It sounds like there's a, it may be that you, you, as you're saying, you kind of cut jobs rather than cut pay. Um, depending well, on if you have to, I mean, that's not something we're planning to do, but uh, but we can also cut pay in a lot of areas too. We've paid very well for several years. We have a down year, we won't pay as well from myself yeah. down through the organization. That's fair. That's the way it should, our interests should be aligned with shareholders. Yeah, I, so you mentioned it, so I'm going to mention it. You just said that you, you mentioned your own pay. Now you, just got a, you just got a $35 million package for your board. <clears throat> Which is not it's not kind of apple or blackstone levels of hugeness but it's higher than it used to be and it, you know these numbers sound like a lot to the average american and they're big you know your pay is a big visible number at a time of major wealth inequality everywhere especially here so how do you how do you think about this how do you explain when people ask you about pay inflation and pay inflation at the top and 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 particularly pay inflation in the financial sector how do you how do you think about it and how do you justify it well we, I mean, given you're talking about it, my, so my increase was 6%. I think our profits dropped 23% and our market cap pretty much doubled. So from a shareholder perspective, it was a pretty friendly outcome. Happily and appropriately, most of my compensation is in the stock and most of that I have to earn through performance units. That's the way it should be. So we'll pay out over several years if we perform. If we don't, it won't. Um, you know, I, my job is not to solve for society's inequalities. Our job is to reward our people who work for us as well as we possibly can for the jobs they do. So one thing we also did, John, for the third year of the last four years, we paid us a special one-time bonus to every single employee who doesn't get a bonus. And I got letters and emails from employees who you know, thanked us because we paid for their whole holiday expenses and so on. We increased the benefits we gave to all our employees. We increased the matching their 401k program. So, we're doing a lot of things up and down through the organization, but listen, we're in a high paying industry. We're also in an industry uh, fraught with challenges. And 
people, whether they're CEOs or executives in these companies, if they don't perform, they're out. And that's the way it should be. But when they perform, they should be paid appropriate to what the industry structure is and what those jobs demand. I, I have no problem with that. As long as we're looking after all the people in the organization, which we are. Has it got, has it got harder running a business like Morgan Stanley? Because I mean, uh, and that is kind of indirectly or directly linked to the question of pay in the sense that pay has gone up. Has, it, has this job become more difficult? Well, interestingly, pay for these jobs back, you know, 20 years ago was double what it is now. Yeah. And they were much smaller companies and much less complex. And they weren't banks. They weren't regulated. They didn't have to deal with GCIB buffers and, and, and CCAR and SACA ratios and liquidity coverage ratios and so on. I mean, it was a different business. It's much more complicated now. But listen, we're, you know, we're extremely well paid and, and uh, we're very fortunate to be so. So turning to you from your wealth to your client's wealth. So wealth management is obviously a bit, a bit part of the business that you grew. You oversaw the merger with Smith Barney, which is part of Citigroup. And I think you mentioned this earlier, but the, you know, wealth used to be about $5 billion of revenue in 2006, I think. And now it's five times that Morgan Stanley, but also as well as the, that number changing, the industry itself, it seems to me, has changed enormously. I think you, you said recently that it used to be a, a question of like, you know, re re recruiting more advisors than were poached from you and just seeing what kind of money they brought in and took with them. But that business is no longer anything like that. And it seems like you're both getting more aggressive in the way you retain, but you're also bringing in wealth from new new places. Can you just talk us through a bit like how, how wealth management has changed since you since you started growing that business at Morgan Stanley? Well, I've been in and around wealth management now for I first started advising a company in 1988. Um, I've been working in the industry as an executive since 1999, so a long time. The industry has changed dramatically. Once upon a time, it was a series of relatively small broker dealers. They recruited from each other. Then the internet started. Charles Schwab took great advantage of that, did a phenomenal job. Uh, Fidelity did a huge job in the whole workplace retirement space and mutual funds. And then along came companies like E-Trade, Ameritrade. So you had three really distinct segments. You had what I call the workplace segment, which you know several companies focused on that. You had the direct segment, which the online brokers focused on from Daytech all the way through to you know Charles Schwab. And then you had the traditional brokerage model, what people used to call full service, which had both financial advisors as we know them, or stockbrokers as they were called, plus financial planners, plus registered investment advisors, RIAs, and so on. What's happened is, firstly, there's been enormous consolidation within each of the three spaces. So Schwab now owns Ameritrade. Ameritrade rolled up many direct players before that. We own the, the equivalent of Hutton, Kidder, Shearson, Smith Barney, Reynolds & Company, uh, Robbie Stevens, uh, Robbie Humphreys, Leg Mason, Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, they're all part of one company now. So there's been enormous consolidation within each of the three verticals. Now, the consolidation is across. So we bought E-Trade and with that, we got Workplace, which is the retirement space. So we're operating in all three verticals. And you've seen some of our competitors who are in the direct only space have built up their advisor through RIA networks, et cetera. So all of it is kind of morphing together because honestly, John, what you do is you go where the client wants you to go. You meet the client need. You don't stay driven by your own business model. You're driven by what's in the client's interest. The clients want you to be there at the workplace for them to manage their 401k and their stock plans. 
They want you to be able to give access to them when they deal with you directly. And they want to provide, if they want financial advice from a financial advisor and their team, they want that. So that's what we've done. We've first consolidated in our sector and then consolidated across sectors. So is there, has the kind of traditional man, wealth manager, they, it sounds like they've kind of been dethroned somewhat in that you're no longer as reliant on humans finding your clients because you can do it through workspace and so on and through E-Trade. But they've also lost a bit of power to kind of shop their trade around, right? Because you're, you and many of your peers are now being more assertive in cease and desist letters and so on to stop people going to rivals. So has this become a business where those individuals just wield less power than they used to? No, no, I don't think so at all. Our top wealth managers are phenomenally successful and run great businesses. No, and the industry has always been trying to stop people from bouncing from one firm with clients to another firm and so on. That's, that's not new. That's been 30 years. No, I don't think so. I think what the reality of the industry is, scale matters. The enormous fixed costs you need for the technology, for the operations, for uh, complying with all the regulatory demands of the industry, appropriately so, are expensive. Mm -hmm. And if you're a small boutique somewhere operating one region of this country, the probability you can meet those fixed costs and pay competitively and generate a return for shareholders is close to zero. So it consolidated through natural forces. I wrote a paper on this about 25 years ago, why it would consolidate. And it's played out that way because it's just basic industrial logic. There's mm. no magic to it. But a lot of people didn't want to believe it because they like the idea of very small firms operating where everybody knows each other. That's wonderful. But unfortunately, it's very difficult to make money given the fixed costs of running these kinds of businesses. So economic reality uh, triumphed in this case. Got it. How's, how's crypto figuring in your view of the future of wealth? I mean, you have dabbled in this a bit. You offer funds, some funds, uh, crypto funds to clients. Um, where, does, where does that go? How much is Morgan Stanley's future tied up with crypto? Small, very. I mean, you'd have to explain to me where, where would displace or uh, change the way we do business in a material way. I don't see how crypto affects what we do in providing merger advice. I don't see how it affects what we're doing in our online banking platform. I don't see how it affects in what our portfolio managers and our real estate and alternative platform are doing. So it's limited. I mean, crypto, um, I've said before, it's, I have no idea what its value should be. It's intrinsic value. Um, I, I don't know. You know, when it was trading above 60,000, take Bitcoin above 60,000. I didn't know if it was worth, I wouldn't buy it for 60,000. But, and now it's 37,000. We're a couple of months later. That's a, a catastrophic decline. So it's a highly volatile asset, which has in it uh, an implied form of stored value, um, an ease of exchange, um, you know, a, a natural limit based on the mining of how many coins can be created, et cetera. But it's not a fundamental threat or opportunity for our business. If clients want to invest in it, we give them that opportunity through these funds. And, I would recommend people put no more than a couple of percent of their net worth in it because it's highly speculative. Maybe you, I'm um, wrong and it's worth a lot of money in the future. I don't think it's going away, by the way. I don't think it's a fad. I've said that publicly. I just don't know how you value it right now. So would you, you wouldn't buy it at 60,000. Would you buy it at 37,000? No. Um, it doesn't mean, just, I'm, uh, doesn't mean I'm right, but it's a tradable asset. I'd rather have something that I have more understanding around personally of, of how it's going to trade. 
How just uh, just sort of switching back to to one of the issues around trading and investment banking. I mean, you you talked about the consolidation that's happened in wealth. There has also been some. Uh, it's probably more of a shakeout, really, in terms of investment banking. And over the last few years, you you and your peers have all gained market share. You've gained market share at the expense of mainly the Europeans. And I guess the question, and, and we've now got kind of five, I guess, big trading houses: UJP Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America. Uh, and Goldman Sachs, is there, is there room for more consolidation, do you think, there, or have we reached a kind of steady state? Well, I think all of those institutions, John, are globally systemically important banks, so-called GSIPs. I think the probability that the regulators would welcome a merger or consolidation among them is about zero. doesn't matter which political party is in power. So, no, I think the probability of further consolidation among that group is very, very low. Global trading is extremely expensive business. To be in Singapore and Hong Kong and Sydney and Seoul and Tokyo, et cetera, forget when you get to Europe and then the US and LATAM, it's an extremely expensive business to prosecute. So you need to be at enormous scale. And what we've seen is a lot of institutions during bull market periods that are very good in their home market develop either regional or, in, or global aspirations, and usually it ends in tears. So it's not surprising to me, having come through a sort of shakeout in the last decade, that we're down to a smaller number of truly global competitive players in all markets. Whether one of the others that, that isn't in that list that you mentioned evolves to sort of challenge its way into that, sure, it could. I mean, you know, there are some great institutions out there in, in Europe and the UK in particular, uh, that have had a storied history in this space, but they've got to, A, want to do it. Their boards have got to support it. They've got to be prepared for the volatility and risk, and that's up to them and their own strategy. So, but right now, it's not surprising to me the way it's consolidated. Do you see any opportunities for, for US banks in, say, Europe? But that, making acquisitions of peers, smaller, troubled peers? I doubt it. I mean, I think, I think acquisitions... The acquisition bar for trading businesses has got to be extremely high from a regulatory perspective. Forget about culture and, and risk management and all the other obvious things. Just why would regulators want institutions cross-border to buy each other, make still bigger balance sheets with more risky assets on them? I think that's a heavy lift. Yeah. Acquisitions that are in other businesses, that's a different matter. We bought, you know, as we talked about, E-Trade and, and Eaton Vance. And previously, we bought Solium and Mesa West. And years ago, we bought Smith Barney. These are all businesses that are not balance sheet, heavy balance sheet uh, dependent. So I think you'll see more of those. But no, I think cross-border um, mergers or acquisitions of trading houses is improbable. I'll just say that. Non-starter so to... from my perspective. I've, we've no interest in Interesting. So closer to home, one of the things that we heard a lot about in the last couple of years was this concept of dem the democratization of finance. Um, it's not a phrase that I've heard you use, but it, maybe you have, but it's certainly a phrase we've heard elsewhere. And I, I, I'd love to know what that, what that means to you, if anything, because if we look at a company like Robinhood Markets, which obviously goes up against E-Trade as a, an online brokerage a bit, it's got 22 million young, you know, young investors, it's more indexed towards um, minorities in the traditional shareholder base. UBS actually, actually, I think today just launched a multicultural investor business. Um, how are you, are you going for these customers to, are you pursuing this goal of financial inclusion and how are you doing it and does it make sense? 
these things aren't binary. You don't you don't just have a business that focuses on one segment. We've we've got something like ten million clients now. So yeah, we're incredibly inclusive, and we've had through our whole ESG platform, and now through the acquisition of Calvert funds in the sustainability space, we're we're enormous in 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 these regards. We've actually had a multicultural institute for many years, run by a woman here, Carla Harris, and we have a a, a sort of development lab for young. Uh, multicultural diverse organizations where we help them develop they come and sit in our organization for a while and we train them and introduce them to investors so i don't know democratization of finance implies that there's barriers there have been you know free checking for a long time i don't think there are barriers to the banking industry uh, unless one has credit issues and to the investment industry i mean you've been able to open accounts with very small denominations for a long time so i'm not really sure the the industry was undemocratic. It's a convenient word. It sort of implies you're doing something for the greater good. I think all these institutions are actually for-profit institutions. So I'm a little skeptical about this, the concept of we're suddenly democratizing. You've got a lot of retailers coming to the market of late, which they'd left after you know the crash in 2000 when the dot-com bubble, that was the last time we really had massive retail engagement. We've now got massive retail engagement. I think that's a good thing for people to understand their financial health matters and how to plan for that and think through it. But if they're just speculating with a couple of thousand dollars, that's not democratizing finance. That's just speculating, hoping something goes up. So I'm, I'm all about financial literacy, financial education, financial openness, encouraging sectors of the community who don't feel as comfortable with financial assets to invest in them for their own financial long-term health. I think that's fantastic, but it's got to be a little more prog programmatic than, hey, the market's hot and going up, you know, let's buy XYZ stock. Yeah. I don't, I don't, that's not going to sustain. We're seeing it with a, you know, red all over my screen today. It doesn't work that way. So with your, like, you know, and your expertise at managing and generating client wealth, if you, I mean, you look at the fact that, you know, American white households have 10 times the wealth um, that black households do. What would be what what would be the most useful thing that would help to close that gap? Whether it's sort of an institutional thing or a political thing, or you know maybe it's neither. What what are what are some of the things that could be done? Well, income equality is obviously it's the sources of money coming in above your uses of money, which provide excess, which is what you can invest in. So that's the starting. And the second is for everybody to understand that being invested in the market long term is much better than holding money in cash or holding it in their bank account. That's just the reality. Now, you have to be prepared to consistently put away a little in a retirement plan, in an IRA, in some savings for your children's education, and sort of work your way in, leg it in over, you know, but over a 10, 20, 30 year period, it truly makes a difference. So the more people in our society who understand that, that putting away, you know, 2%, 5%, let alone 10% of their income for for the future so it can grow, the better off they're going to be. But you've so got to have enough income coming in above your expenses to do that. It's all well and good to say, do it. Well, if somebody's got to pay their bills, they've got to do that first. So it starts with income. It starts with employment, then income level, and then financial literacy, and then putting the money to work sensibly and not speculating. I just have two more questions for you, and I'm going to pass on to Gina. One is just, I want to expand to zoom out, if you like, to the kind of the global picture. 
has your view of the world changed in recent years in terms of where you'd put your next dollar of investment? Because you, you know, you're actively pursuing new licenses in China and more deals in the Chinese mainland, and you're not the only ones who are doing that. Uh, but at the same time, the US-China relationship is getting less stable um, in many ways. How, you know, what, what's your view of the kind of economic and political risk and you know, where looks relatively more or less appealing than it did a couple of years ago? Oh, we tend to take a very, very long-term view. You know, we've, we've owned a business in China, Washington Securities. We invested as a minority shareholder. We now own pretty much all of it, same in our asset management business. That's not going to change. Uh, we don't front run, front run US policy. If the government tells us not to do business in a certain country, wouldn't. The government is not going to say that about China. These are the two largest economies in the world, the US and China. Between them, they account for 40% of global GDP. They have to be open for business with each other. That's a non-starter. So we'll help Chinese companies and Chinese citizens the same as we'd help people all over the world. So it doesn't fundamentally change, John, how we think about our strategy. Now, would we make a major acquisition? Um, offshore, we want to be very sure that we had the same rule of law, we had the same uh, governance structures, we had the same controls that we have in our major centers. So when it comes to big transactions, you, you have extra layers and filters that you've got to work through. But, but near term, Morgan Stanley is a global company. We've been operating globally for, you know, uh, uh, nearly 90 years. So I'm nothing, that's not going to change. Absent US policy dictating change. But so if you think that China kind of long term is still very appealing, but short term, there are obviously these anxieties around everything from Taiwan to the US-China relationship. Does that mean that China is the China option, if you like, is relatively cheap right now? Uh, I don't I don't really think about it that much. I mean, it's not, you know, something like 15% of our revenues come from Asia, half of that's from China or China related, you know, that's 7% of our company. It's even that would be high. I it's we, we just take a long-term view. We, we like to own businesses in the markets we're in, not be minority shareholders. We're doing that in China. Uh, we've worked with a lot of companies in China going globally and US companies going into China and helping to expand their franchises there. So no, I don't, I don't have a fundamental different view about China. It's just, you know, it's, we try and separate ourselves from the geopolitical rhetoric, which can be very hot at times but we're ultimately guided by, we're a US headquartered, US regulated company by US government policy. It's pretty straightforward. I don't try and second guess our government. So you said that you won't be around in Morgan Stanley in five years, which is also a thing in different words that your peer, Jamie Diamond, JP Morgan said more times than I can count. But so if you're thinking about the, the next generation of leadership in Morgan Stanley, if you like, I suppose the question is if you, if you had to build if you kind of had to build a Frankenstein's monster of a future Morgan Stanley CEO, what would they, what would they, what would they have that, that you didn't? Because the the way the way that we do business has obviously changed even in the last two years, and changed enormously since you were, you know, at McKinsey, for example, doing your MBA at Columbia. What what does the what does a future CEO look like for your company? Well, we all have skill deficiencies and experience deficiencies, so any future CEO will be, by definition, not be perfect. You know, my understanding of technology is not what somebody coming through in the last 10 years would have. It's just not, I grew up in a different generation. So um, I, I less focus on 
specific skills than I do things like temperament, judgment, <clears throat> balance, values, strategic mind, ability to withstand pressure and stress because these are highly stressed jobs, you know, willing to make a big call and accept you'll be criticized by some people before the outcome is clear, by the way, certainly criticize when the outcome is clear, if it's a failure, but your job is to make decisions. Your job is to be somebody who um, evidences the culture of the organization, the values, and, and you run it through good times and in bad with not indifference, but without getting pushed around. So it's more the intrinsic values of the person. All of the people who could replace me are highly intelligent. All of them have great experience in the market and all of them could be CEOs. So the board over time will figure out, you know, who the best person is to replace me. But high on the list would be the, the core values of the individual in addition to specific skills you'd like them to have. You know, I had a very global background. I worked for a little while um, in Hong Kong. I've spent a lot of time in, in Japan. I've spent a lot of time in Europe. I worked in Spain for a little while. I think that helps, right? Being, but it's not of itself a gating factor. It's just, you know, every, you know, I didn't have any experience in trading. My goodness, what a risk was that? Well, I was going to say, we cause... worked through it, right? You supplement it by putting people around you who have experience. And then over time, hopefully you learn the skills. So nobody's going to come, John, with a complete portfolio of skills or experiences. So it's more intrinsics that I focus on. And ultimately, it's the board to decide. Won't be my call. Got it. What do you need to get done before then? What's the main, like, how do we, how do, from the outside, what should we be measuring it against? I know you've issued, you've got a, this goal of having $10 trillion of client assets under management, which would make you as big as BlackRock is today. Um, is that, well, for example, much higher yielding, you're aiming at? Much higher go? yielding assets. We and generate like 50 basis points per dollar of assets. So, no, I don't, I mean, I don't think about it in terms of I've got to do this before you know we transition I've got to do my job my job is get these companies integrated and functioning well that we've bought show progress towards the goals we have we're not going to achieve 10 trillion in the next couple of years that's not physically possible could even go backwards if the markets go down for a period of time but the long-term trajectory has to be there uh, so I'm more focused on what it takes to run the business than I am about myself and, and specific objectives you need to achieve personally. Great, thanks James. I'm gonna hand over now to Gina, who I believe has some excellent questions from our audience. Terrific, thank you. Yes, we've had several come in, um, lots of interest in various things. Uh, I'll start off with sort of the most immediate news as we, um, I'll wait for the results of the uh, Federal Reserve's Market Rate Setting Committee to um, meet tomorrow and for Chair Powell to talk about um, his projections for the year. Um, if what, what are you expecting from the Fed this year? Do you feel like they are a bit behind the curve in terms of their um, last projections of three rate hikes? Some investors are looking at four or five. And how do you expect that to affect both Morgan Stanley's business, but also the American economy in terms of the US dollar and getting a handle on inflation? Well, firstly, Gene, I just say I have enormous respect for the Federal Reserve and 
have had the pleasure of serving as president of the Federal Advisory Council and then on the Federal Reserve Board of New York for many years and worked a lot with uh, Chair Powell, uh, Chair Yellen before him, Chair Bernanke. Um, these are talented, committed uh, public servants. And it's easy for people like me to sit back and tell them where they're wrong before we even know uh, what the outcomes are. So I'm not going to do that. I have been calling for for two years. I've said I thought we should have rate increases in 2022 when most of the market didn't think we would and none of the dot points suggest we would. The closer we've got to 2022, the more uh, those things have come together. I don't know if it's three, four or five. I'm, I'm less worried about that than I am that the, the train moves out of the station. Uh, we're about 10 quarter point increases away from what would mostly be considered normal. It feels like with massive fiscal stimulus, very low unemployment, growing economy and inflation that is clearly more than transitory, zero interest rates don't make sense. That's pretty common sense. Uh, personally, I would raise rates in March um, and I would err a little more on the aggressive side. The market won't like it too bad. The market will have to get over it. The market doesn't have a right to free money forever. We need to get things back in balance and balance is growth, fiscal stimulus, unemployment, inflation and rates all have to be working together. And right now we're not there. I think the Fed is on, on the right path. I think they've, they've dropped the word transition um, relating to inflation. They've acknowledged the inflation risk. Obviously, you know, they've cut off the um, uh, the huge stimulus that was going on, um, and now they're moving to rate increases. So I don't know what the dot points will show, uh, but for me, I, I would err a little on the more aggressive side than not. And um, you also mentioned uh, the markets. Um, we've all been watching what's been happening to the NASDAQ, the S&P 500. Um, what are your thoughts on, on what's going on? Is this an overdue correction? Is this something that you expect to be long-term or sort of this um, place right now where investors are just trying to kind of figure out uh, the, the new normal as, as the Fed moves and, and we see other transitions? Well, you've seen some distortions. You've seen uh, uh, companies trading 30, 40, 50 times revenue. You've seen the general distortion that comes from free money everything suddenly looks investable when you've got free money. Um, you've seen the distortion that comes from the disruption and the devastation that COVID caused on the economy, counted by the other side as the vaccines are starting to be adapted around the world, um, are, are resizing. So those that were sort of COVID-friendly stocks are now unfriendly stocks. So all of this is the natural disgorgement of a couple of years of unreal circumstances. Free money, record low rates, uh, COVID collapse of the economy and then restarted the economy globally, uh, massive fiscal stimulus, a lot of mini bubbles created, and those bubbles are getting burst. Um, you know, I'm looking at, you look at companies like AMC and GameStop that were, have done so well, you know, they're trading on my screen now down 35, 41% year to date. We're not in July, in the third week in January. So there's a lot of movement and volatility going on in this market. I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the year, the market ends up somewhere flat, but within it, a lot of winners and a lot of losers. I think it's a stock picker's year this year. That's a good chance just to interject. Look, volatility is good for your 
industry, right? I mean, we, volatility was what made 2020 such a good year. So are you expecting that this will again be a very good year because of that volatility, even if it's kind of a lot of it's downward? No, volatility is good to a point, but uncertainty at some point is not good. Um, so volatility, the short-term sort of pricking bubbles, if you will, John, is different from just ongoing uncertainty because with uncertainty, people stop um, uh, you know, raising capital. Mergers don't happen. Clients don't put money into the market, they put into cash. So at some level, there's a transition. Right now, you're seeing some short-term volatility. I'm sure that's fine for the business in the, in the immediate term. But if that translates into longer-term uncertainty, that's less good. So we're still in a don't know period. But right now, I, I expect 2022, as I said on our earnings call, to be fine. I mean, unless the markets really, really collapse, I think, I think we'll do just fine. And uh, perhaps we just have time for one more. Um, and this is also sort of related to what's happening um, in the economy writ large and how that's affecting Morgan Stanley and Wall Street in general, uh, in terms of the, the tight labor market, we've seen you know, record number of job openings and uh, tough competition for workers, especially in certain sectors. How has that affected uh, the finance industry, especially as you know, some of the younger people you might want to recruit are also looking at crypto or fintech startups. Um, before that, you guys were competing with Silicon Valley a bit more. Um, where are you seeing the challenges on sort of recruiting and retaining talent these days? We have no problem recruiting people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we get well north of 100,000 resumes every year. <clears throat> there are plenty of talented people all over the world. Sometimes we think all of them exist only in a few colleges in America, but actually the world is a big place. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not worried about our ability to attract talent. Um, there's obviously more turnover in certain areas. Some of the control functions, you know, you'll see more turnover as other banks step up their uh, compliance and controls and things. But generally, our, our employee base is pretty stable. In some of our technology groups, you see more uh, churn, if you will. Uh, but generally, I'd say it's relatively stable. With the broader society, the so-called great resignation, you know, that works to resign and do nothing for a period of time. But once the government stimulus disappears, then it really doesn't work. I mean, you need income. So I don't see how that settles. I think that will probably, you know, uh, people are making lifestyle choices for sure. The kinds of jobs they want to do, where they want to live, those are choices we're all making post-COVID as we are sort of adjusting to the new world. But not working is not an option. Um, the economy is growing. Lots of help wanted ads out there. Clearly wage inflation. Salary's gone up, including our own. I think we're up 5% again this year. Um, so generally for our kind of financial institution, it's much less of an issue than it is if, for example, we had a lot of bank branches or a lot of clerical type stuff. Um, and, you know, as to people going working in crypto and, and, and other forms of finance, absolutely. I mean, there are some very exciting jobs in um, the, the new sectors in finance, but there are very exciting jobs at Morgan Stanley and very stable jobs at Morgan Stanley, and very high paying jobs at Morgan Stanley. So I'm not seeing a huge exodus for everybody to go and work for a crypto firm right now. I'm sure, you know, onesies and twosies are doing it, but we've got, we've got 75,000 people. So 
Gino, I don't, don't want to be complacent about it, but it's not really, certainly hasn't evidenced itself as a risk for us as a firm. And as the way we're performing, the way we can pay people, the way the stock performs for those who get stock, these are all positives that help glue. And then it's down to culture. Do you fundamentally share the culture and the values of the institution? I, on our employee surveys, over 92% say they're proud to work here. So I feel pretty good about that. Thanks, James. You've been really generous with your time this morning, so much appreciated. Thank you for your insights. Thanks, Gina, for those questions and for the audience that asked them. And thank you to everyone who watched and join us for more Breaking Views prediction sessions coming up in the next few days. Thanks all. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for spending time with us on this crystal ball gazing episode of The Exchange. Thanks too to James and to Gina and to our podcast editing ninjas, Sharon Lamb and Katrina Hamlin. You can find more episodes of The Exchange wherever you get your quality podcasts. And you can also read our financial commentary at breakingviews.com, reuters.com, and by following us on Twitter at Breaking Views.